You know, I was going to start by saying two really big things happening this week on Monday and Tuesday, but the two things don't really compare, and I want my wife to know that before I say this. Um, because <laughs> I felt like, I thought I was going to say that, and I was going, wow, comparing those two things is a little bad. And I wasn't even going to talk about the first one. Tomorrow is my anniversary. That's not the, the big thing I was going to talk about. That's bigger than the big thing I was going to talk about, of course. Of course it is. Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't that be? 30 years of her putting up with me is a very big deal. Pray for her. Pray for my dear wife. Yes. So especially pray for her. On our next, on our 60th, I mean, our 60th anniversary, I'll be, I'll be 86. I'll be a lot to deal with when I'm 86. <laughs> oh, man. So that's happening tomorrow. So, um. That said, getting to my sermon, do you know what's happening Tuesday? Does anybody, any baseball fans in the room know what happens Tuesday? You know, that's already happened. Thank you, though. Lots of TCU guys in the draft. Yes. Um, What? Trade deadline. It's a trade deadline. And you're just looking at me like, oh, gosh, Dean. He's either talking about baseball or the Lord of the Rings. What's wrong with this man? Anyway, um, it's just the, it's the deadline for when trades can happen, and after that, you're stuck with who you've got. And I, I love this. I love this time of year because I love all the speculation and the back and forth, and who would you give up to get this guy? And no, I would, he's too much. We're only going to have him for three months, and you're going to give up this guy they're going to have for five years. You, there's basically two categories of people. There's buyers and there's sellers, and this is a perfect time of year for the sellers to totally rip off the buyers. And it's just an amazing thing to watch billionaires spend their money on baseball players. It's really weird, but it's really fun to just dive in and speculate because at this time of the year, (laughs) as weird as this is, people who run baseball teams have to decide if they're hopeless or not. I mean, really, that's what it comes down to. Do we have any chance of winning anything significant? Yes, okay, maybe we'll buy. No, not really. Who do we got good that we can get rid of and get something good out of? Yeah, sell that guy. He's gone. We're not going to win any. Can you imagine? What a feeling that must be. Imagine being a player on a team. The owner thinks, you guys got nothing. Um, Yeah, there's your best player. He's out of here. That's not discouraging at all, is it? Right? So this is the time of the year, and, and Tuesday's the deadline and where we find out who thinks in their own mind that they are hopeful or hopeless. And there's lots of anxiety, lots of frantic activity. Please don't trade my favorite player. Please get somebody I like. Please don't overpay for that guy. But there's a category, though, in the middle there that I find very interesting. And that's the team that does absolutely nothing at trade deadline. They just sit there and watch everybody else go crazy. Are they hopeful or are they hopeless? We don't know. They're just watching the world go by. Many of them are probably thinking, are you kidding? We're great enough already. We don't need to add anything to this greatness. Or they're thinking, nobody wants a thing we have. (laughs) So... Yeah, what are we going to give them, our bat boy? Yeah, I don't know. Um, 
It's that team that does nothing. That just, that just kind of rests. That kind of... My favorite team might do nothing. And I, and I kind of don't mind if they do nothing because they weren't supposed to do something till next year. This is like a freebie. But this is another psalm. It seems as if every other psalm has the word hope in it. And we keep talking about hope in this, just how crucial hope is. And if you can imagine, these people are traveling together and... Um, they're constantly reminding each other to maintain hope. Um, I don't know if that's just the nature of walking a long ways. That's part of it. But that's, that's, it's bigger than that. It's like we're in this together, and we're on the way to our city where we are going to worship together and pray together and serve together and offer sacrifice together and seek the Lord together and be in the temple together. And we need to maintain hope. And this is Psalm 131, and it's a very short psalm. It's only three verses long. Um, don't worry, next week's psalm is 18 verses. So we'll make up for it. Um, we're down to just four more. We have a, after, we've got an 18 verser, then another three verser, then another three verser, and we're done. So it's, Short, really long, and then short and short. Um, I have to say, though, in these three verses have been the hardest one yet for me. Um, hard to understand, definitely, but much, much harder to apply. Like, all week long, I'm, like, frustrated. Like, do I get this? Can I do this? Um, it's a psalm about hope. It's a psalm about hope together. But the together doesn't come till verse 3. The first two verses are about the heart of the individual who's calling everyone else to hope. And there is something very, very deep and profound going on in this heart. Um, Spurgeon said, this is one of the shortest psalms to read but one of the longest to learn. And I have to agree with him. And one of the things that makes it difficult is when you look at the title. We've only looked at the title a couple of times, and someone has already mentioned this to me. Jeff said, do you see who wrote this psalm today? It's a psalm of David. And then you read this, like, from David, and you kind of go, well, that's interesting. But let's, let me read it. It's just three verses. And I'm going to bring other translations in because part of the difficulty of understanding is, it, is that all the translations sound different. And um, I didn't do that great in Hebrew. There's your confession from your pastor. Um, I did like three funerals the semester I had Hebrew. And I just, man, I just passed the quizzes and held on for dear life. And so... Um, I just, this is difficult, but here, let's read this. My heart is not proud, Lord, and my eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child. I am content. Um, 
now watch it shift from the individual to the group. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. A Song of Ascents from David, which is, which is interesting. Do you remember David wanted to build the temple, but David didn't get to build the temple. So here we have a Song of Ascents from a guy who would, have, who would have only ever ascended to the tabernacle. He never got to see the temple. So this is a Psalm of David that originally from his mouth um, would have been very different from those who ascended to a full-blown temple, very different from those people who came back from captivity in Babylon. I don't know when this was written, right? Because we tend to have certain markers in David's life, don't we? Right? Well, there was that time when he got called in from the field and he got chosen to be king over all of his brothers. Like, what is going on here? He's just like a little dude and he's anointed to be king. Oh, so David's going to be king now. Oh, no, absolutely not. You see, there's this guy named Saul. He's a bit of a megalomaniac. He's going to spend the next like 10 or 12 years trying to kill David. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, but then there's David and Goliath. That's what we always remember. David and Goliath, David kills his whole bunch. Saul kills his few. Saul's jealous. He's throwing spears at David. David was anointed to be king, and he spent all those years running for his life, hiding in caves, pretending to be crazy, even in one instance, before he finally becomes king. And then you've got, what's your last marker? Is Bathsheba. We can't forget. We always remember that, don't we? Um, so then you're looking at this psalm going, well, when did he write this? Like, I would be very, very afraid to write a poem that started with the words, my heart is not proud. Like, you're thinking, well, that's exactly what a proud person would say. <laughs> Who says that? Ah, Lord, my eyes are not haughty. My heart and my eyes Interesting, huh? Your heart, I call it heart in Bible, I call it air traffic control. Obviously, no one in the Bible had that idea in mind because that didn't exist then. But that's just my idea of it. Your heart is just kind of where everything is happening in your life. The, the Proverbs say it's the wellspring of, above all else, keep an eye on your heart because that's the wellspring of life. Life comes out of there. You're thinking out of your heart and you're desiring out of your heart and you're loving out of your heart and you're feeling out of your heart and Everything's happening in there. It's air traffic control. So he says, my heart is not prideful. And you're thinking, well, that doesn't sound very humble. But let's keep going. Is there something about this? Because C.S. Lewis, when he talked about humility, he said humility is one of those things that if you spend any time at all looking at it, thinking about your own humility, it just goes poof. It's not there anymore. It's just so difficult. But my heart is not exalted. My heart is not raised up. And he says, my eyes are not haughty. Meaning, I'm not looking down on people. So if that's kind of the definition, I'm like, okay, well then that, that's a little more specific. My, I'm not looking down. I'm not, I'm not seeing myself as exalted above other people. Okay. Now, again, do you know anybody who would confess that they have haughty eyes? Do you know anybody that would confess, yeah, I just look down on people like crazy, right? It, just, it takes verse 2 
to get to the point to where you know if verse 1 is true about you or not. <laughs> right? And we'll see that in just a second. But just confessing this day of heart, is heart. I've, my heart's not exalted, my eyes are not looking down at himself. And then the rest of verse 1 is just a strange little piece here. And then Avia says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. So, David, you wrote some pretty wonderful things. You wrote some great things. Apparently, you even thought about great things. Um, what's going on here? As a matter of fact, I would encourage all of you to think about great things, to think about wonderful things. What does he mean, I do not concern myself with these things? And if you were to go all the way to the message, paraphrase, and work your way back, like you heard me read the beginning, I, have not, I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. I don't concern myself with matters too great or too awesome for me to grasp. There seems to be this idea that he's not just trying to get as much greatness in his hands as he can get. I'm not pursuing a great name for myself. And you think to yourself, well, that's a funny thing for a king to say, isn't it? Like, he's... But, but from the get-go, it wasn't like David showed up and volunteered for king. Like, what kind of crazy person would even do that? Who wants to be king? Well, yeah. I'm suspicious of people who want to be king, right? It's like... No, he was, he was thrust into this. He was chosen into this. So it wasn't like he said, I'm going to get all I can until I get to king. So I think when you put these two things together, I think he's just saying, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to live my life in such a way where I'm just so ambitious that, I, that I'm going after just wonderful, great things. My heart is not proud. My eyes are not looking down on people. And I think that comes out of verse 2. And this is the one that gets me. But I have calmed and quieted myself I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Now, if you were to ask me to give you a picture along these lines of a content child, it wouldn't have been a weaned child. It would have been like a newborn child that was actually feeding. At the same time, what is a, a, a newborn child doing when it wants to be fed? Yeah, it's screaming at the top of its lungs. Like it doesn't have words to say, Mother, Mother, I believe it's time for me to eat now, if you would please. It doesn't have words, it's just feeling a little rumbly in my tummy. Ah! Right? There's no contentment. There's no contentment. 
It's like, feed me now, and then when I'm fed, then I'll... But this is interesting. This is a, 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 a weaned child with his mom. And he's just calm and quiet and satisfied in the presence of mom. Like, mom didn't pick me up because I was screaming. (laughs) I'm not here because I was pitching a fit. I'm just here. And I'm quiet and I'm content. I think you only can figure out verse 1 if verse 2 is happening. I think you can't really know yourself well enough until you can get to a place where you're quiet, where you're at rest, where you're calm, like a, a kid who's just in the presence of mom. The weaned child in the verse is content in the mother's presence. And he's speaking of, maybe if you're looking at a Bible translation that's different, he actually uses the word soul. I've calmed and quieted my soul. So in my soul, I'm like a content little kid with his mom. Someone wrote, the proud person is developmentally regressing. (laughs) The humble person is developmentally progressing. And this is what someone said, when you were weaned as a baby, it was the first time in natural human development that you were forced to realize that you could desperately want something and yet not have it. Now, I don't know why David wrote this. I don't know when David wrote this. We'll, we'll find out someday, and we'll talk about it. Um, like, was it when he found out he didn't get to build the temple? Um, was it when he was running from Saul? Like, I don't know. Whatever it was, David found himself able to calm and quiet his soul. And in the calmness and quietness of his soul, he said, you know, I don't need to chase after great position. I don't need to chase after title. I don't need to to get to a place where I look down on people. My heart doesn't need to be lifted up. In other words... I can be content to let God bring to me whatever God wants to bring to me. Which is where you better be if you've been anointed king and you're still not king 10 years later. And the guy who is king has a spear in his hand and he's throwing it at you. There's all sorts of psalms like this. Psalm 62.1 Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you.
It's this idea of our inmost being being in the, in, in the words of Dallas Willard, completely unhurried. If you don't know Dallas Willard, he was a philosophy professor at University of Southern California, but he was a Christian. How does a Christian become a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California? I don't know, but I'm amazed by that. And when he was asked, like, what's at the top of your list? I had like, I had 20 seconds with Dallas Willard one time, and I completely blew it. So somebody else asked a better question than I did, and somebody asked him, what's, what's at the top of your list? What, what, does, what is one thing a Christian need to know? What's one thing a disciple needs to know? He said, at the top of your list, and he used these words, the ruthless elimination of hurry. He said, we are hurrying our souls to death. We got to do this, and after that, we got to do this, and then we worry about this, and we're anxious about this, and what am I going to do here and here and here? He said, We never come to the place where we just go and experience a calm and quiet soul. And he's like, He used the word ruthlessly eliminate hurry, like you do everything you can to fight against the feeling of hurry in your soul. But it's, I love how this goes because he's got one more verse and he turns to the group. He turns to the group. So you can imagine you're walking along, there's Jerusalem and you're just calming and quieting your soul with this crowd around you. You're just thinking about a quiet soul. You're thinking about a content child in the presence of its mother. You're thinking about humbling yourself before God that you're going with all these people to worship together and offer sacrifice And then it turns outward and you say, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. Put your hope in the Lord. And I think maybe this is the key to the first two verses. Maybe the key to humility and contentment is eliminating every other hope and getting to the Lord being an eternal, present hope. I love that he says, he didn't just say, put your hope in the Lord right now. And he adds on, and forevermore. Like, when we're in the new Jerusalem, we will still say God is our hope. Like, we'll never get to the point where we're like, I think I've got this down. I don't need God anymore. I don't know how that'll work. But... um, He makes this plea to his fellow countrymen. This this is a, a great quote I found. I think maybe Eugene Peterson said this. Pride is not the occupational hazard of being great but the result of finding hope and identity in greatness. So the way to grow in humility is to do humble things. So if my hope is in the Lord and nowhere else, then I can quietly be in his presence. Right? But then I have to think about this. Well, let's... It's, he, he goes from a really, really deep place in his soul outward to everyone else. 
when you fast forward and you're down to the northern half of the kingdom is gone. Assyria came and wiped them out. Babylon's on the doorstep. Um, and Isaiah the prophet is prophesying. And it's, it's, it's to the point where it's gone. Like, like it's, Babylon's not turning around. Listen to this. Isaiah 30, verse 15. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. I'm not going to finish the verse yet, but I want to read that again. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. So the sovereign Lord who's chosen these people says, you want salvation? Take a deep breath and quiet yourself in me. You want salvation? Repent and rest. You want to know what it's like to be strong? Just be quiet and trust me. But listen to how the verse ends. This is so, so tragic. The verse ends like this, but you would have none of it. You would have none of it. And what, did he, what was constantly happening in Isaiah? They saw Babylon coming, and what did they start doing? Ah! Somebody go get Egypt! Somebody go find us some help! And Isaiah was like, don't, please don't go get them. Whatever you, why would you go get pagans to help you against pagans? You're doing this all wrong, right? Repentance and rest. So, Let's, let's go with the opposite. And let's, I believe we can get to this if we think about the opposite for a moment. Then we'll, we'll finish up. Um, David Pallison, he was a guy, I really loved his writing. He was a counselor, uh, wrote some really good stuff. But one of the things he did with Psalms was to help you get them, he would write a Psalm of the opposite. And if that doesn't make sense, he wrote the opposite of Psalm 131. And when I read his opposite psalm, I went, oh, okay. So this is opposite Psalm 131. My heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself. And my eyes are haughty. I look down on other people. And I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. So, of course, I am noisy and restless on the inside. It comes naturally. Like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap. Like a hungry infant, I'm restless with my demands and worries. I scatter my hopes onto anything and everybody all the time. Bingo! (laughs) Why can't my soul get quiet before God? Because I got stuff to do, and that stuff to do is my identity, and that stuff to do is my hope. I'm all wrapped up in stuff I've got to do. Come on, God, you get this, right? And God says, but I'm your hope. But what if I don't... What if I don't do the 20 things? I'll still be your hope. 
right? I'm just, of all the weeks, it's almost like a test. God's like, hey, I got Psalm 131 for you. Oh. <laughs> right? It's like you sit down and you try to get quiet, and what happens? You know, I really could finish that, and that could be doing while I'm doing this. And I really could work on that and then come back to this, and then that'll be halfway done. By the, and then I'm just... Maybe it's just, maybe it's just ADD. I don't know. Maybe you have this problem too. But I think there is a... I, I think this psalm is hitting it. If I'm scattering my hopes all over the place, I am going to be anxious and not quiet. And I'm going to have a very hard time slowing down. And then when I achieve all those things that I put my hope in, I have put myself in a position where I can look down on people who don't. (laughs) That's the Psalm 131 opposite psalm. (laughs) There's one last verse here. Um, See if I can find it where I put it. I can't. I think it's Jeremiah 34. It's a teeny, it's really funny when you read Jeremiah. You're going along and, then, and Jeremiah's huge. And there's this chapter that's this long. Um, Tim Keller passed away in May. Loved the guy. I've read like nine of his books. Redeemer Church, New York City, started the church. Lots of, yeah, anyway. Um, he recorded a message for his church. They were going to be having a gathering where all the campuses were going to get together in one place. And he was, he was dying of cancer. So he recorded a video of himself. And he, he died the day they were going to get together. And they watched the video that night. And so he was telling them all this advice and just rejoicing with them and telling them how happy he was for them and all this stuff. But his very last word of advice was this teeny tiny chapter in Jeremiah where Jeremiah is talking to his basically his secretary, the guy who... There's a fancy word for it, but you don't want to know what it is. But it's, it's his secretary. The guy who wrote down everything for Jeremiah. Does anybody remember Jeremiah's secretary's name? That's the point. <laughs> when you're Jeremiah's secretary, nobody in 2023 goes, oh yeah, I named one of my kids after him. No, you didn't. Because you don't remember his name. Because he's not great. But Jeremiah looks at his secretary and says... Are you desiring great things? Do you want to go down in history as more than Jeremiah's secretary? He says, don't desire great things for yourself. And that's the end of the chapter. The chapter is that teeny tiny little conversation. And and Tim Keller read it to his church, and he kept saying it over and over to this church. Desire not great things for yourself. I know he's like, I know you live in New York City. Everybody in New York City desires great things for themselves. You'd be different. Desire not great things for yourself. Where does that come from? A calm heart that knows where its hope is. A weaned, content child. Um, I want to pray for us because I know this is not easy. Because I start with the unquiet, hurried heart. I start there and go, how do I get rid of this? And God says, we'll go to your hope. Truly, what is your hope? Where are you putting your identity and your hope, your salvation?
is your hope in a scattered all over? Or if it's, if it's just me, if, if I am your hope, then it should be natural that you can just get as quiet and calm in my presence with me because you don't have anything else. So I always want to start there. And, and the Lord is like, let's back it up to your hope. Where's your hope? And then let that lead to the, the quietness. Can I pray that for us? Can you join me? Lord, um, these psalms just keep telling us, hope in the Lord, hope in the Lord, hope in the Lord. Where, we, where else are we going to hope that's going to make any sort of sense? Lord, I just ask for your forgiveness that I can't quiet myself because I've got these hopes. And Lord, maybe it would take a moment of quietness for us to realize that we've scattered our hopes other places too. Would you show us what that is? We live in a hurry-up society. That's, this, this world wars against Psalm 131. This, this just seems like this is going to be the fight of my soul, Psalm 131, and this world is warring against this. So I just pray more than anything, God, that, that for my brothers and sisters, you would be our hope, our only hope. And then that we could become people with a quiet, unhurried soul. Humble souls. I just know that if you do that, Lord, we will stick out like a sore thumb in this culture. I also believe that we will be like those first disciples when the world looked at them and said, they've been with Jesus. And that's why we want said. Lord, just would you make this psalm true in our lives? We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.